Hi there, Subterraneans listeners. I wanted to take a moment before the show starts to draw attention to my Patreon. On it, you can find subscriber-only episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and full episode transcripts, all available from just £5 a month. This show takes a lot of time to put together, so I really appreciate any support you can offer. It's all available now at patreon.com forward slash subdepod. Thank you so much for all your support. Now, on with the show. Researchers from the Federal University of Rio Grande do Sol in Brazil have spent the past few years exploring a series of tunnels which dot South America. Easily large enough for a human to walk around inside, these tunnels were initially thought to be some type of ancient architecture, with some of them running several hundred metres underground before hitting a dead end, and often incorporating strange architectural features, such as branching corridors and long, claw-like scratches across the ceilings. Around 1,500 of these tunnel networks have been identified across the continent. The newly prevailing theory is that these tunnels were actually dug by ancient megafauna, specifically a species of giant ground sloth known as a lestodon. Measuring about four and a half metres from snout to tail tip, these huge creatures are thought to have passed down their burrows across generations, resulting in impressive tunnel networks as successive families of sloths dug larger and larger spaces. Looking at photos of these burrows fills me with a sense of wonder and dread. It's hard not to imagine our ancient ancestors sheltering in them, or, perhaps, being dragged backwards into them by some as-yet-undiscovered prehistoric horror, never to be seen again. They can be huge and elaborate, and many remain only partially explored, despite being large enough to drive a train through in some places. I remember once seeing a video where scientists poured concrete into an ant's nest until it was full, and then excavated it. The final structure was almost 70 square metres across, stretching 15 metres deep below the surface. If we scaled up something of that size and complexity to giant sloths, you'd be looking at 5 square kilometres of elaborate, densely packed tunnel. Or, to put it another way, a rough approximation of central London's tube network. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. Highgate Station is one of the most beautiful train stations in London. There are those who would disagree with me, who prefer the sweeping steelworks of Victoria or the Pyrenean grandeur of Westminster's crisscrossing escalators. There's something about Highgate which really stands out. It was originally designed by Charles Holden, the architect behind many of the most iconic North London stations. Think of the stretch of the Piccadilly line with open, circular, drum-like entryways such as Southgate, Wood Green, and Leicester Square. 
I want to take a moment to quote Holden's view on architecture, as expressed in an anonymous 1905 essay titled, If Whitman Had Been an Architect. Often I hear of the glory of the architecture of ancient Greece, of the proud Romans, of sombre Egypt. The praise of vast Byzantium and the lofty Middle Ages too, I hear. But of the glory of the architecture of the modern, I never hear. Come, you modern buildings, come. Throw off your mantle of deceits, your cornices, pilasters, mouldings, swag scrolls. Behind them all, behind your dignified proportions, your picturesque groupings, your arts and crafts prettinesses and exaggerated techniques, behind and beyond them all hides the one I love. There's not much I can add to that, except to revel in the fact that such a man got to create so much beautifully simple architecture in such a famously gaudy city as London. Highgate only partially lived up to Holden's initial design, due to World War II getting in the way, but the changes made gave it a unique charm. The station entrance is built at the bottom of a deep cutting, alongside what used to be the overground steam rail lines, and a one-way escalator leads up the side of the valley to the top of the hill. Riding this enclosed escalator to the squat, exit-only building at the top feels like being shot out of a cannon at slow speed, and when you reach the top, you can look out the windows at the back and see the overgrown remains of the old steam platform, now softly swallowed up by wildlife and graffiti. Indeed, the whole place feels part organic, overgrown and dense, tucked away beneath the earth like a warm secret told in confidence. I know the little valley is actually a huge man-made earthwork, replanted and carefully cultivated, and I find that soothing. I'm not much of an outdoors sort, sorry to those of you who just fell out of your chairs in shock at that revelation, but I get pretty heated when I hear talk about preserving the natural landscape or returning an area to nature. There's almost no spot on this planet which the human touch hasn't somehow affected, even in a distant way. So this idea of nature as this unvarnished default state which pre-existed humanity seems a little twee and convenient to me. I'm a romantic about nature, and I mean that in the strict sense of the romantic poets. They held encounters with the sublime by way of nature to be encounters with overwhelming and terrifying beauty, like gazing into the face of God as he reaches down to squash you like an insect. It's the overflow, the excess, the too much of the earth blasting you off your feet like a riot hose, at which point you promptly get devoured by a bear. Given so many of the romantics were soft lads who lived in London and had fainting spells in large crowds, I suppose it's no wonder I feel an affinity for their work. Still, my point stands. I've always fallen most in love with the places where human and non-human architecture collaborate unexpectedly, with a warmth of purpose which outstrips the viciousness of each in isolation. That's what I see at Highgate Station even despite the disgusting wealth of the neighbourhood it resides in. It's a negotiation between human and plant, a sense of carefully managed, unadorned beauty. On almost the exact opposite side of London, 
There's a sealed tunnel buried beneath an unassuming stretch of land near New Cross Station. This patch of land used to be part of a private estate, back in the 19th century, owned by an old money family called the Chortleys. The house dates back a few hundred years to a relative who made most of their money in the early days of the transatlantic slave trade, but like most wealthy families, they spent a lot of time and money trying to hide this fact, indulging in that most upper class of hobbies, trying to trace your family tree back to royalty, as though that somehow justifies living with obscene wealth. Lord Edward Chortley, born 1824, was known as something of an explorer, in the vein of many British settler colonialists of his era. And there's still a remarkable diversity of species in the nearby street trees, due to the broad botanical collection he brought back with him from his travels. Unlike some of the other, more famous explorers, however, Lord Chortley was not simply interested in developing a collection to feed his own ego, via misplaced benevolence. No. Edward Chortley worked for the British government directly, and his work was funded variously by the Colonial Office, the Foreign Office, and the myriad intelligence agencies which coalesced around them, a sort of proto-MI6 arrangement, in charge of suppressing resistance to British occupation. As a result of the secrecy surrounding his profession, we don't have a lot of information about where he was working. What we do have is a series of ship manifests showing a vast amount of cargo coming back with him on the boats he chartered for his voyages, most of which would disappear into the various governmental archives that were destroyed or locked away when the British Empire crumpled. There are literal miles of documents from this period which are still held under lock and key in Hanslope Park, a top secret government facility in Buckinghamshire which continues to studiously protect the reputation of the genocidal British Empire to this day. Anyway, the New Cross Tunnel. Lord Chortley took time out of his travels to invest in the early stages of the building of the tube. An exploratory stretch of the fleet line exists somewhere in this area, buried beneath what used to be the Chortley family estate which has now been torn down and redeveloped so many times it's basically unrecognisable. We have old maps to go by, but like I say, the area is completely different now, so the location of the actual tunnel was lost when it was sealed up. I'll come back to that later. I want to talk about islands and colonialism for a moment. A small island is its own little ecosystem, and it's this fact which has been a source of fascination for Europeans since we first started to explore the oceans. Think of Culliver's Travels, one of the foundational texts of English literature, and how firmly it planted the idea of obscure islands as microhabitats for unique creatures and bizarre cultures in the popular imagination. That idea isn't baseless, of course, but it does occlude something vital when considering the history of Western expansion. Namely, that the overwhelming majority of what was encountered by these colonists was promptly destroyed by them, either in the interest of profit or 
just out of basic, arrogant indifference. Explorers went out to seek their fortune, obeying the myth of the eternal, untouched frontier, nature ready to be plundered. They did so with a brutal efficiency, rending the world asunder and leaving us now, hundreds of years later, still picking up the pieces. We often consider our gaze as neutral. We're just looking, we're just visiting, we're just passing through, taking photos, sightseeing. But it isn't. The ability to consider yourself a neutral observer of other cultures comes from a place of power. If you can leave, you can never understand. Not really. It's something I've grappled with throughout this series. When I look into these stories, into these places, am I taking more from them than they're happy to give? Around the world, there are five or six different rat islands still in existence. Basically, a rat island is when, at some point in the early days of imperialism, a ship came by and left behind some rats, most likely by accident. Before the boats arrived, the island might have had a thriving ecosystem. Usually these islands had a handful of unique species, often flightless birds or reptiles depending on the climate. When the rats arrive, however, they quickly decimate the local wildlife, since they lack any local competition, and there have been multiple documented cases of explorers returning to an island they only visited a few months before to find it overrun with thousands of rats feasting on everything they can get their teeth into. What's even more haunting, though, is the rat islands which no longer even exist. You see, when the food chain gets disrupted like that, it has a knock-on effect for the whole climate. If the local plant life was reliant on a specially evolved type of bird as a pollinator, for example, wiping out the birds also quickly wipes out the plants. That, in turn, might affect a different species which nested there, and so on and so forth, and all that's left is a roiling mass of rats and destruction. Complete ecosystem collapse has devastating consequences on even the geography of an island. Dying trees rot and the soil loosens beneath them as the root systems drift apart, the sun scorching the ground into desert. There are tales of entire land masses in the Pacific disappearing in a matter of months, leaving behind only rat carcasses and floating debris. Victus Island was one such place. Discovered by Lord Edward Shortley in 1859, it was a tiny island somewhere in the South Pacific, likely in the region of the Tuamoto Archipelago, although we can't be entirely certain since it obviously no longer exists. Shortley's visit was short but eventful, and he returned to London with several ships loaded with unique plants and creatures. When they tried to visit again, though, it was gone. Just a sandy patch of shallows surrounded by driftwood and death. As mentioned before, the majority of the items he brought back were immediately placed under lock and key, since he served as an agent of the government. We do, however, 
know of two things that he found there. Firstly, a rare strain of mushroom known as Victi, named for the island, which contained the precursor compound that is now used to make Delorum, as discussed in Season 1, Episode 4. Eaten raw, these mushrooms will have a similar, albeit less powerful effect, which is to say they will slow down all your body functions and leave you near comatose in a state of intense, unmitigable pain, normally lasting two to three hours, after which you'll wake up with few lasting physical symptoms. The second thing we know they brought back was much stranger. Victus, you see, was host to a rare megafauna, long thought extinct. Giant sloths. Without any natural predators, they are able to thrive on the island, mostly sustaining themselves by eating vast quantities of victime mushrooms, which they'd adapted to tolerate the effects of. These sloths have built huge, elaborate tunnel systems beneath the small island, which probably contributed to how quickly it collapsed after the rats took over, and mushrooms lined the walls of these underground tunnels, flourishing in the damp, humid environment. It's a classic story of isolated co-evolution. The sloths spread the spores through their thick fur, and the mushrooms themselves repelled other predators by being so highly poisonous. We don't know precisely how long the sloths lived, but it was clear that the tunnels they built were far more complex than anything seen on the mainland, indicating a significantly lengthened lifespan, likely a side effect of the Delorum. The captured sloth was, they guessed, a younger one, but the older ones could have lived for hundreds of years, peacefully digging and eating on their little island paradise. It's funny, I suppose. For all the tales of lost islands populated with hostile monsters, what Shortly and his crew actually found was a harmless little ecosystem of survivors, which they, of course, immediately destroyed. Upon their return to London, the captured sloth was exhibited in a few places, mostly for the edification of other wannabe explorers before being confined to Chortley's private zoo on the family estate in New Cross. That's not the end of the story, though. The idea of an underground rail line linking London's various large passenger terminals to the centre of the city had been a part of popular discourse since the 1830s, so when it started to move ahead in March of 1860, with construction starting on the Metropolitan Railway line, Chortley saw an opportunity. At that point, much of the underground work was done using the cut-and-cover method, whereby you dig a huge, deep trench, reinforce the tunnel section at the bottom, and then cover it all back over afterwards. This was massively labour-intensive, and disruptive to operations above ground, and an arms race developed amongst the industrial class to find a way to tunnel for long stretches without disturbing businesses above. I'm sure you can see where this is going. Shortly wasn't entirely stupid. He knew that giant sloths were not exactly reliable workers, and that they would have difficulty ensuring the tunnels went in the right direction. He was sure they could, at least, do the preliminary excavation, 
and then be followed behind by navvies expanding and reinforcing the tunnels for trains. Shortly instructed that a big pit be dug on the edge of his estate and that the captured sloth be placed inside it as a demonstration of how the process might work. While this was happening, he set back out to Victus Island, hoping to capture further sloths for his workforce. Credit where credit's due, it almost worked. Reports from the navvies indicate that the sloth took to the London clay admirably, immediately digging a 20 metre deep burrow into the earth, which they were able to reinforce and expand in its wake. Despite the much colder climate, the sloth seemed to be happy working underground, in as far as you can measure the happiness of a giant prehistoric sloth. The problem started shortly after that, however. The sloth had been fed on carefully prepared victi mushrooms, grown in a controlled environment so as not to harm the workers, but apparently some of the spores had continued to live in the sloth's fur. Workers returned one morning to find the tunnel infested with fungus, and three navvies were rushed to the hospital after getting too close. The London clay seemed to supercharge its growth too, and attempts to remove it proved futile. No matter how much they managed to hack away, it quickly grew back, and workers refused to go near it in short order. The sloth itself had been allowed to live down in the tunnel so as to expedite construction, but now that workers could no longer get inside without inhaling dangerous amounts of poison spores, they couldn't retrieve it from its cosy underground den. One day, they arrived to find the fungus had grown all the way up the side of the entrance shaft, and in a panic, they quickly filled it in, hoping to smother this dangerous and aggressive new species before it reached the sun and started to prosper. Shortly returned from his voyage to Victus, a broken man, having discovered his actions on the previous trip had entirely destroyed the peaceful little island, leaving nothing behind. He'd self-funded the return, banking on being able to sell his tunnelling project to the city, but between terrible storms and his tendency to micromanage the ship's technical officers, his wealth obviously outranking their experience. The journey took around six months longer than initially expected, and he contracted a terrible illness while travelling, which left him too sick to work. They failed to capture another sloth, obviously, and when he discovered that his original one had been sealed in, he was furious. Workers, though, refused to dig it up, since word had quickly spread about how dangerous the fungus was and, more importantly, Shortley's money was running out to pay them. They downed tools and left Shortley alone on his gigantic estate, where he died only a few years later, driven mad by his failures and unable to find further profitable work with the Secret Service. And that, unfortunately, is just about where the story ends. 
Chortley's estate was sold off after his death to cover his debts. The tunnel remained sealed with the giant sloth inside, presumably suffocating to death after a few days. Possibly not. The final couple of navvies into the tunnel reported hearing running water somewhere below, indicating the tunnel may have hit one of the city's many underground rivers. If so, it's just possible that the sloth survived, finding another oxygen source in there. With access to food, water, and oxygen, who knows how far this lonely creature might have dug. I think of it sometimes, toiling away in the eternal night of the underground, surrounded by harmless poison, slowly preparing to re-emerge, to bring our foundational crimes brutally back into daylight. A seam of violence runs beneath the city, but those who are hurt the most have found ways to live in that seam, to thrive even. May God have mercy on us all, should we ever disturb them again. episode of Subterraneans, Nuclear War, who will survive and what will be left of them. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app since it really helps getting my name out there. You can also subscribe on Patreon where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 per month. Patreon.com forward slash subtopod to sign up. Special thanks go to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran and Alex, whose names I curse every time I go back underground. Thanks for listening. <laughs>